0: Hey, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Sustain. Here we talk about all things around open source sustainability and helping make a world where we can all continue to grow and build the infrastructure that we all live upon. And today we have Justin Dorfman. Happy New Year, everyone. Pia Mancini. I got it right. Yeah, you did. Hello, folks. Gunnar is going to be joining us very shortly, so I'll introduce him. And then finally, our guest today is Justin Flory. Justin, how you doing?
1: Doing pretty awesome.
0: Hello. So, Justin, you are best known as an open source contributor in the U.S., and you're currently a student at RIT, the Rochester Institute of Technology. That's right. You've been doing a lot there. I read your bio, and you've got quite an extensive background in humanitarian efforts. Uh, I'd love to hear a little bit more about you, about your background, and where you are now today. Sure. Sure.
1: My open source journey began actually when I was a high school student. I was probably 14 or 15 when I first got hands-on helping build a community around an open source gaming project. And it was sort of a series of events that led me along deeper into the open source world through contributing to the Linux open source community, getting involved with my university's open source program, and also taking the only free and open source software minor in the United States. I've done a lot of traveling around the world and getting to meet people who have different backgrounds and experiences and different focuses and needs for their projects. So these days, I'm focusing a lot more around the humanitarian relief and aid sectors, specifically with some of our work with RIT's LibreCorps initiative and how we work with the UNICEF Office of Innovation.
0: What drove you down this path? You said you started at an early age. What, what was the uh, driving force for that? So
1: it, it's kind of a long roundabout story, but I actually started playing Minecraft as, as a kid in like 2011. And, you know, I wanted, it was fun and I wanted to have a server. I wanted to build a community and play with my friends. And so I, I started doing that and figuring out, this was my first time learning with like networking and starting to do a little bit of systems administration work. And that led me to an open source Minecraft server software. And I was going there to get help. And over time, I was spending a lot of time in their forums, in their IRC chat rooms, helping people. And I ended up becoming a community manager of sorts in that community while I was in high school. And that was what led me to my first time traveling out of the country for the annual Minecraft convention in 2015. And that was kind of my first opportunity to actually meet all these people who I had been working remote with for three or four years. And it was really, I think, what helped lock in the value of of community and the people that build software together. So like it's been a a long journey to kind of get where I am now, but it all kind of came from this attitude of, you know, I had something that I wanted to do and I had fun with and I wanted to share that with other people. I wanted to build a community and that's what's led me or I like to think has led me down this community building, community management path specifically around free software projects.
2: You know what I love about this podcast is I'll go to Sustain and I know, Justin, you've been to both, right? Just 2018. Okay. So I I remember seeing you because I guess you were younger and I never knew any of this about you, which is just (laughs) so amazing that we have that opportunity. Like, you're like a prodigy. Like, you started when you were 14, like, just is amazing to me. So, (laughs) you know, and that's really, really interesting that you brought up Minecraft because I think that's about the time that Microsoft acquired them. So, you know, I'm not a gamer, so I didn't realize what an impact, how many sub communities came out of. Minecraft itself. So was it just the server or was there other parts of the game that you were drawn to and and contributed with?
1: Part of the reason why I got involved with that open source server software community was because I was trying to run my server and I was 15 or 16. I was trying to do all these. like I was using Linux for the first time. I was trying to figure out like DNS and domains. Like I was all completely new in all of this. And that community was very helpful, inclusive, and they helped empower me to build my community. And so it was kind of natural for me. I always felt like, wow, they were so... This, this community had no obligation to help me and I always wanted to give back. And so over time, my contributions to that community was mostly trying to help people in, in the same way that so many had helped me in trying to build my community. And learn all of these things that were completely new to me. But to anyone who's in the field, you know, if you were to go to an adult, at you know, this would be common knowledge. But for me, I was I was still learning it all, and it ended up just being a chance for me to get hands-on experience with other things. Like as we were getting ready for that convention that I mentioned, we were doing things like we had the community participate in our promotional materials. We worked with the community to do a contest for graphics and like a video that we would run in our booth. And all of these things were were curated from the community because everyone was a volunteer in that. There was no one who was working in that gaming project as a paid employee. I look back on it now and I feel like a lot of it is actually grassroots volunteer organizing. There's a lot of parallels to that that I see now. You know, And this was also my first time really engaging with a global community. There were people there, like for example, the project founder was... Which was even this is even more wild to me was someone who was always my age, based in Australia, and he had built this open source server software, and he was the project lead, and he had been contributing to the predecessor project when he was eleven. It was wild to me all the people that I was meeting, and to me it was inspiring. Like I was seeing all these people, and I was like, wow, like it kind of opened my eyes to kind of leading me down the path, I guess that I, I went down. Like I don't think about it a lot these days, but. When I, when I do think back about like, how did I get to where I am now? like What's been that journey? That was actually a pretty pivotal part, I think, in just giving me this exposure that in my small little hometown of Georgia in the United States, I, I don't think I would have gotten that.
2: I think that's the beauty of open source is that it doesn't matter where you're at. As long as you're contributing, that's all that really matters. Now, with the server costs and all of that other stuff, How did everyone deal with that? Like, was there like a PayPal account or just would interest me? Because this is, I think, 2015's pre-Open Collective, right, Pia? Yep.
1: We were just starting 2015, so...
2: Yeah. Justin, how did you deal with all of the expenses.
1: So there's the stuff that I was doing on my own and building a Minecraft server. And then there were the things that we did as a volunteer community for the servers. It was the Spigot project, which was my my project highlight we can cover later. But there's kind of two sides. So like as I was 14 up until I was about 19, I was running it sort of as a business. So we would have these open source plugins made for Spigot that would let you give people different perks for, you know, say they spend $5 in a web store they'll get you know a certain set of items or maybe special commands that the only they can use. So on, on that side, I was funding it very much as a community initiative. And we had like a volunteer, like I, I built up a staff team that was helping me volunteer. They'd run events in the game server. We would do contests and I had all these people who were helping me do that. And the donation aspect was how we kept things going and afloat and how I I was covering the bills while being 14, 15. So yeah, it was like a shared PayPal account, I guess. But on the flip side for the Spigot Project, that is a completely volunteer or a donation sustained effort. It was really a community supported initiative. And we would do things like when we were getting ready for MineCon that we would have different donation drives to try to fund different things that we wanted to do, like the cost of a booth to get us into the convention hall. So I don't know if that really answered the question, but
2: it absolutely answered the question. I mean, like it's just so cool how, you know, you were doing open source sustainability, even though you didn't really, I mean, don't <laughs> let me speak for you, but you didn't really know that it was. You're just trying to survive and keep the project going and the community alive. So I just, find that very fascinating.
3: So Justin, where did that road lead you? What projects are you working on at the moment?
1: Like I mentioned, I ended up going to the Rochester Institute of Technology, actually because they had one of the biggest influencing factors was this free and open source software and free culture minor. Given that I was doing all of this open source stuff in my free time as a high school student, that was what really, it was one thing that stood out to me and it was like, oh, like I really... It was just, to me, it was such a cool idea, like, wow, I can go to school and take classes on open source. So I ended up going to RIT and started getting involved with the FOSS initiative there. That's been going since around 2009, both on the academic side and on the student organization side. There's a lot of different fronts that we're we're kind of covering there. The one that I'm most personally involved with these days is LibreCore, which is a student-driven Faculty led program to partner with humanitarian organizations to help give them expertise in open source community management or in the software development side. So, we've worked with organizations like UNICEF's Office of Innovation and their Innovation Fund, Open APS, Night Scout, and we were one of the biggest contributors to the Sugar Labs and the One Laptop Per Child ecosystem. So one of, for example, one of the classes in that minor is a humanitarian free and open source software development course. And what students have traditionally done in that class was they were given one of these one laptop per child XO laptops, which I don't know if you're familiar with those, but they were these laptops that were produced to give countries where they weren't enough resources to have internet or computers to introduce cheap hardware for kids to kind of get their first experience with computing. And a lot of the games on there were educational games. So it would be things like like math games or or reading or music making. It was a very... And it was all an open platform. It was all open source. It was Linux under the hood. And so what we did in the course was we would actually have students make a game for the XO laptops. And these games would target the fourth grade math curriculum for New York state and Massachusetts. So students would first start looking at the curriculum and be like, how do we want to build a game? What is an idea that we could do to address this? And then over the semester, they build a game and not only code it, but they have to do design They have to do a little bit of marketing and community outreach. We'd actually work with the Sugar Labs community to publish our game in their little app store. And we do a little bit of documentation in their wiki. So it was the thing I always appreciated about it, even though I don't think I appreciated it fully until later on, was it was never just about the code. It was about the full picture of what goes into a software project. You have design, you have marketing. You have to do community outreach because it's you know it's not just done once you've put the final commit on. And that is kind of reflected in the other courses that are offered in the minor as well. One of them is legal and business aspects of FOSS, which is a very deep dive into licensing and the legal aspects around open source. And the last one is actually a free culture class, which is actually an English class. And you go deep into the history of free software. Like, where did free software come from? You go deeper into the movement behind it and kind of where we are today, 30, 40 years after this movement has really kicked off. And those are the core courses of the minor. But all that is to say... I guess to kind of bring it to a close is the LibreCore work was an extension for me. Like after I was going through the minor, I was getting this deeper dive into understanding these intersectional pieces of FOSS. And I was able to get involved with working with UNICEF. In 2018, I did a six-month internship as part of the LibreCore program, where I worked on this project at the UNICEF's Office of Innovation called Magic Box. Magic Box is a project to map connectivity, like internet connectivity in schools in South America, with the goal of making it easier for governments and nonprofits in those areas to identify areas of need and deliver compelling cases for funding to be increasing internet connectivity or improving infrastructure in those areas. And that's kind of where our work has been focused a lot in this last year is building up around the LibreCore program.
3: That is. Fascinating. I had no idea at all about this. And it's at the same time very encouraging that this exists, and at the same time a little bit sad that it's only one university that is providing <laughs> this. And it seems like such a core course. I don't know. I'm blown away by all of this. Just think so. Like, I appreciate it. I was just going through your blog post through your blog. You're super prolific. Um, And the latest, I think it's the latest uh, post that um, called my attention, the one about why FOSS is not on activist agendas. Do you want to just maybe mention that?
1: Absolutely. So this is one that's been on my mind for a long time. And it was in November or December, I came across this old article on Linux.com about why FOSS is not on activist agendas. It was published in 2006. And it spoke to me in this very interesting way, only because there was a lot of points that were mentioned 13 years ago that I felt were... He was, he was really pointing out something really big. And to me, some of the things that he was getting at in his post was... Uh, I think the, the best way I can summarize it is he was interpreting this as like a knowledge barrier about technology makes open source and free software less accessible. The insular nature of activism makes collaboration difficult. And then FOSS activists reaching out to other activists with shared value should be encouraged. And so there's three things that stood out to me that were really key in his analysis was first this predisposition towards difference. So I think the point that he was getting at was that there were different age groups in the activist communities. And because of that, That was how people viewed each other by differences. But I was coming at this from someone who's in the younger generation, and I didn't feel like, well, he was close to it. It wasn't quite the full picture. So to me, I think what the truth is there is we do tend to focus on differences instead of similarities. That's just the nature of our discourse. And I think with how we look at our political world around us and how our societies tend to work. I think that there's a lot to gain through manipulation depending on whether you know how to leverage things like social media for things like for good, like social activism, or for harm, which would be you know, deceptively persuading large parts of a population to think something. So on one hand, I felt that noting the politics of division is the context that we're working in is really key to understanding how do we start building a movement together. The other major point that I thought was key was his emphasis on outreach on ethics instead of coming at it from a software perspective. I kind of felt like this one was obvious because if you say like, oh, like you don't go to a an educational conference to talk about free software, but you might talk about how freely licensed content is helpful for sharing content across nonprofits or educational organizations. So the idea being that the jargon and language in the tech world is not accessible to a large majority of the global population. And I think a lot of this is actually kind of tied to the rebranding of free software into open source in 1997 with some of the work that the open source initiative did because free software was a really hard business pitch before 1997. And I think that by emphasizing the business sensibility and practicality, that's one example of how we change the language of How we talk about FOSS. So, to kind of wrap that point to a head, I think that if we're actually going to bring free software outside of technology, we have to take an ethics based approach and how we organize amongst ourselves and promote the values of FOSS to people outside of technology. And I think this will actually improve the diversity of free software by bringing in more people with different backgrounds who aren't so deeply rooted in tech. And I think this is the part that gets me really excited was noting the importance of intersectional movement building. And that's kind of a mouthful. But what I mean by that is just like I was saying earlier with the kind of piece of the courses at RIT weren't just about programming and code, but they were giving us this bigger picture of what kind of things are valued in a project. It is more than just code. So, you know, those of us who are in the free software world, we're really coming at it from a background that is informed by technology. And, you know, this background is super helpful and useful as, as we're building new advanced technology at an unprecedented rate. But even though software and technology are the important parts of the world around us, they're not the world around us. So the part that I thought was excellent was noting that, you know, people who are working in one context can transfer their skills or their understanding into different areas. I think sometimes we might, we take this perspective of like, if you're a tech person, you know, like you're always going to have to be in tech. But so many times I've seen people who entered tech, you know, from a totally different background. Or, you know, they were doing something like in a business or in a non-tech engineering field before they came into that. And so like the metaphor I like to use for this is it's just like a healthy garden. You know, you need to have cross-pollination of these different niches to help build understanding and how we can help each other and accomplish our mutual goals. And this is also, I think, why that whole, you know, focusing on differences instead of similarities is really problematic because sometimes... That's not how we approach these things by default. We have to learn or we have to remind ourselves to approach things in that way. So an intersectional movement building to me means we're bringing in people into the free software world who maybe don't have this deep technology background. And we're also working to make it easier for them to get involved and participate. And the last thing that I think where I actually didn't agree with the original article was, like I mentioned earlier, was this assumption that activists have their own share of insularity and that it's just, it's too hard for activists to cross the streams and talk with each other. And I don't necessarily think that's true because so much of what we see in the grassroots organizing and in the aid sector is actually collaboration. Like that is the nature of how things get done. And there's different challenges that come from that collaboration But I don't think it's enough to just say that activists are just an insular nature of how they interact and how they engage. And I think there was one uh, excerpt in there where there was someone who was in that article who was really like struggling. It's like, people didn't want to listen to me. People didn't want to listen about open source or FOSS back in 2005 or six. And like, I I thought, you know, indeed, like attention is a currency in, in the world of an activist. And it's not enough to just expect people to listen to you on an appeal of technology. Part of the work in sharing is you have to understand who you're sharing with. And if FOSS wants to take deeper roots in the activist community, we need to understand the backgrounds of those activist communities. And we need to be creative in how to appeal the mission of FOSS to the mission of their work. And that's how we build inroads. That's how we start building an intersectional movement together, at least as I see it.
3: No, that makes a lot of sense and I have a lot of comments, but one of the challenges that I think the world is facing at the moment and I'm still not seeing like the open source or the FOSS community stepping up to the challenges in climate change. I haven't seen as much activism or kind of coordination of open source folks, you know, supporting the climate emergency movements. I just wanted to ask you like if you have any kind of thoughts on that or if that's something that in the university you are also
1: working Unfortunately, it's not something that I have a deep background in. But at the Mozilla Festival in 2019, one of these sessions I went to was from local organizers in London from the Extinction Rebellion. It was actually this really witty workshop to give an idea of how the Extinction Rebellion, a decentralized movement, organize. We were given this mock scenario of organizing a big party in London, But everyone was in different groups and had different responsibilities. And there was no guidance from the facilitator. We were completely on our own to figure out how we would work with the other groups. And there was no one who told us you're gonna be in this role, you're gonna be in that role. We had to figure that all out on our own. And I actually like I left that workshop thinking like, wow, like this is so similar to how we see open source grassroots open source communities form up. It's people who will take on these different responsibilities. And there's people who were in the little corners who are working to you know, go between different groups and make sure everyone's on the same page. And like that was one thing that stood out to me is you have a lot of people who there's this kind of secret and visible role of people that do that integration or going across these different groups to make sure everyone's on the same page. So you don't have one group that's going so far beyond the other one where it's not going to be able to line up later on. And It's not specific to climate change, but just knowing, looking at their movement, it makes me excited for how maybe in the open source world, specifically around software oriented towards climate change, we could learn a lot from people who are organizing in the non-engineering world, but maybe deeply attached to the environmental activism world.
3: Gunnar, you're with us.
4: Hello, friends. Sorry to be coming into this great conversation late, but great to be with you. Hey, hey. Hola. I see that the date right now
0: is early January, and we have three events coming up back to back that are all in Brussels. One of them is the Sustain, which is where we talk. It's basically an unconference that's run by Gunner that we discuss All things around how we can build a more sustainable community. And then after that is chaos. And then after that is FOSDEM. All back to back. It's going to be a very fast paced. I see that you're speaking at FOSDEM.
1: That's right. I'll actually be working with my colleague, Mike Nolan, on our talk, Freedom and AI. Can free software include ethical AI systems? which is a really big open-ended question. I can give a little bit of a sneak preview, I guess, about what we're going to be covering if you're interested.
0: Absolutely, please. So
1: at a high level, Mike and I were approaching this Thinking about the history and background of the free software movement. So, one of the things that's emphasized in the FOSS courses at RIT, but also just in the history of free software is these four essential freedoms that we are promised through free software licenses, which is the freedom to read, to read the source code and understand how something works, the freedom to run, which is the right to use software any way that you wish, the right to remix that you can make changes and change the source code of a project. And lastly, the freedom to redistribute, to share your changes with other people. And all of those are very specific to software. But in this complicated world that we live in, it's not just about software anymore, but it's also about things like data and predictive models. So Mike and I were you know, starting to ask the question, what does it mean? to have an AI system that respects our freedoms. And so we started to explore some of these ideas by looking through some research from the United Nations and the information sharing protocol, HDX. I can get some links for those. And we started to kind of imagine what are the freedoms that we would like our AI systems to respect. And so some of the ideas that we're going to be pushing at our talk is we want to give people Context. We want to help bring people onto the same page to see how the free software world can influence the future of artificial intelligence and automated decision-making in a positive, sustainable, healthy way. So I guess a sneak preview of some of the four freedoms that we're looking to explore is the freedom to influence an organization, the freedom to appeal a decision... The freedom to hold a person or an organization responsible for their decisions and actions. And lastly, the freedom to audit mechanical decision-making systems, which are all really big. It's a big mouthful, but that's what we're trying to communicate and give our audience some inspiration to take these ideas home. And where we know we're coming to this where we don't have all the answers and we're not going to be acting like we do. But we really want to get people who are in this free software space, which is why we thought FOSDEM would be a great venue for this, to start thinking about these issues. And what is happening a lot already is people are thinking about them, but they're thinking about them in isolated pockets. So our goal is to get people thinking about them together and collaborating and starting to imagine like that shared vision of, that affects everyone, that affects all of us.
2: So Eric sent me a cool link and I remember reading it after Sustain Summit twenty eighteen. You have this awesome event report and we are going to have you do the twenty twenty one, just you know ahead of time.
4: <laughs> All right. Gunner, I'd love to get you in on this yes. conversation. Come on, Gunner. Oh, I'd love to come in. I'm a little context challenged over here. When has that
2: ever stopped you?
4: Touché. Justin, I I know governance is front of mind for you. I am curious how you deconstruct governance down to the next level of detail. Sort of how do you factor governance into sort of subcomponents or subdisciplines? What to you is the most understudied aspect of lost governance?
1: So for me, this is is a space that I'm just starting to come into because a lot of my experiences both as a volunteer contributing to corporate open source projects, but also as, as someone working in open source in the humanitarian world. I keep coming back to governance as this really key issue. I had a conversation with Ariel Fox a couple of weeks ago, talking with her and some of her experiences working in the Ushahidi community, really started to help me think about things in a different way of how we bring in the community to the decision-making table, which a lot of times, and I think in corporate open source projects, there is like a hierarchy that exists, right? And a lot of times decisions are made in a non-transparent way and they're handed down to the community. And sometimes people are hoping the community will take it and be happy with it. Sometimes people just don't even, don't even have that care, I guess. So for me, like, I really want to explore this topic with other people to start imagining community-first governance models and what that might look like. And I think it's a very complex topic because there's a lot of things to unpack there. What I'm really interested in and where I really want to engage this is from the volunteer perspective of people who are heavily engaged in free software communities and projects, but they aren't necessarily employed to work on those. And those people are sometimes the biggest contributors or even have a large stake in the project for reasons that might not be always obvious. And if you're someone in that traditional governance hierarchy, those voices, I believe, are sometimes the most underrepresented. Or even if they are at the table, they don't have the same weight as someone who might not even be deeply involved in the project, but has their own priorities and needs that they imagine probably for the bottom line or the profit or, or the, I guess, yeah, like the bottom line of the, of the organization. And I think it is possible to have a bigger voice for the community in these projects, both in the corporate sense, and also in the grassroots volunteering sense. So for me, like I don't really have a definite answer of like, what is this community first governance right now, but I'm really excited to start talking about this with more people and learning from other people's experiences to get an idea of what that might actually look like and how can we build that in a sustainable way.
4: That's great, thank you. Yeah, and I think you're speaking to an interesting tension, which is I think there's, you know, so much of what we talk about with governance is intra-project, and I think especially when corporations are involved, either with their own open source or other people's open source, there's an extra component to the governance. And that is to say sort of uh, dynamics that exists in the interstitial space between organizations and projects. So I'm really glad you're working on that.
1: hoping to push the conversation a little forward in Brussels in a couple of weeks too.
4: We will make space for that and I'll follow up with you on that one. Excellent.
0: We're starting to to wrap up here. Is there anything that we haven't talked about yet that you'd like to talk about before we get to the spotlights?
1: Just kind of one thing that's been on my mind, just because... So one of the things that I I also do as a student, so I, I did the free and open source software minor at RIT. But I'm also taking the women's and gender studies minor at RAT. And that's given a pretty interesting perspective from my point of view as to how these technology communities are building. Specifically to those ideas of this community-first governance model. To me, I think that there was, you know, in those four freedoms of free software, the freedom to read, run, remix, and redistribute, none of those have anything to do with people or community. They're all about software. And I think that. You know, Looking at the emergence just in the last 10 years of this open source community management type of role in a lot of organizations and at open source program offices, this value of community is starting to become more prominent. And to me, I see a lot of parallels to a feminist movement emerging in FOSS. So I think that relationship between technology and the communities around the technology is only going to grow over the next few years. I think it's just something that's really interesting to pay attention to because if you look at social movements and you do a little bit of comparing, I I think you see a lot of trends and the emphasis on people, on communities in technology that wasn't there 15 years ago.
3: Absolutely. And I think that the points that you were making before, Justin, about like in your course, how like different skill sets are being brought up as equally important parts of an open source project. It's also what, at least in Sustain, that's the type of sustainability that we are pushing for. So different skill sets that accommodate for folks in different roles. I think it moves the focus on the generally male kind of coder and that, that that is the most important role. And so when you start opening up and you start giving equal importance to different skills then you start having a much more balanced and rich community. And, and that's what makes a community sustainable, I think, is the, the ability of the community to, to thrive and to be resilient and to have people coming in and then who are replacing folks that are moving on and having accommodating and, again, giving equal weight
1: to different roles. It's, it's a key part of that. Absolutely.
0: All right. First off, where can people find you online?
1: So best place to find me is probably on the Twitterverse. I'm jflory7 there. And you can also find a few more places like my blog on my website, justinwflory.com.
0: All right. We're going to wrap up this episode. Every week, we each share uh, one open source project or library that has provided value or has impacted our lives. The goal that we have with our spotlight section is to draw attention and show gratitude to the projects and those maintainers that are keeping those alive. So we're going to go around the room here. So the first one I'm going to pick just because you are first on the list is Justin Dorfman. Why don't you go
2: ahead? Thank you, Eric Barry. So my pick is Tailwind CDN. Uh, I just became aware of this from a person I know, his name is Zoli, and uh, he's from a company called Themesburg. It was inspired by Bootstrap CDN, which is a project that I've co-founded. He will be adding sub-resource integrity soon. And it's just really cool to see more public CDNs out there. And I don't know, it's just kind of cool to see like I inspired someone. Uh, Pia, how about you?
3: So in line with the recent conversation, I am not a developer. So I don't normally have libraries that make my life easier. I can tell you what libraries might make my team's life easier but I don't know, so I normally have meetups and um, other initiatives like that. So today I have Queer.js. Queer.js is a meetup series that everyone is encouraged to attend, but where all speakers are queer. And they started not long ago and they are very successful. They're already in 10 different cities. And I think that opening spaces for queer folks to talk about technology, it's a great mission that I support.
0: That is fantastic. Gunner. I know that you came late to the show. I want to make sure that I don't pick you before you have something. Do you got something?
4: I got something. I'll hack the process and go for a category or a suite of tools that I'm just super grateful for. The hardened Linux movement the folks that are doing innovations at the kernel level at, that I think will show up in mainstream Linux not too far in the future. But a particular big shout out to the Tails OS project and to Cubes. So I'm getting ready to on my second laptop and run a version of Linux that is much better designed to protect me against all kinds of threats like somebody using my microphone when I prefer they didn't. So a big shout out to all those folks, Hoonix and Subgraph as well.
0: Fantastic. For me, I picked one that I've picked. I picked on previous podcasts before that is something that I use almost every day as a software developer. And it was written a long time ago by Brian Gonzalez. It's called MERT. And Mert is kind of like TMUX for Mac. It allows you to use iterm and set up multiple panes and it has really incredible controls, but it's a pretty simple tool to use as a developer. And if you are in the terminal a lot and you run multiple windows, it's a super awesome tool that I love. So I wanted to share that. Justin, how about you?
1: So as I mentioned earlier, the Spigot MC project was my my project I chose. And specifically a shout out to Michael Dardis, who is the project founder and was a personal mentor for me. Spigot is an open source Minecraft server software that was a fork of the original Bucket project with a third-party API for you to make changes to the Minecraft server. And you can build plugins to extend the functionality of Minecraft in as as many ways as your creativity is limited by. So I, I think it's an excellent project. And for a lot of kids, that is actually a project that I think most of the people in that community are probably between the age of 13 and 25. And it's about half a million people there. So that's my project to to give a shout out to.
0: Fantastic. All right, we're going to go ahead and wrap this up. I did want to share one observation that I had, and that's very much not in line with what we've been talking about. As we've been talking, Justin, I can't stop thinking and picturing. So when we're talking, you only have a photo, so I can't see your face. And I keep thinking that you are the voice actor for Hiccup on How to Train (laughs) Your Dragon. (laughs) because <laughs> you got the exact same voice. So it's been, it's been not only enlightening, but highly entertaining to talk to you today.
1: <laughs> definitely have to work on getting a, a working webcam for next time.
0: <laughs> <laughs> no worries. All right, we're going to wrap this up. We want to thank our sponsor, Linode. We also want to thank all of our panelists and our awesome guest, Justin Florey. And we look forward to seeing you in Brussels. Thank you all. Bye.
2: Bye, Bye folks. Bye.
0: This podcast is brought to you by our friends at Linode. With 11 data centers worldwide, including their newest data center in Sydney, Australia, with enterprise-grade hardware, S3-compatible storage options, and their next-generation network, Linode delivers the performance you expect at a price that you don't. Get started on Linode today by going to linode.com sustain.